I'm so tired of the side-by-side photos. Um, me looking so much worse than the guests, but I don't think that's going away anytime soon. Um, uh, especially not with my um, powder-like um, uh, haircut. Uh, <laughs> um, that's quite an up-to-the-minute reference. I, I uh, think from- I'm um, I'm I'm going to reach you in the middle at some point. Uh, I saw myself in like a full-length mirror for the first time in a year the other day, and uh, <laughs> yeah, it was like a rugby ball kind of uh, effect. At least it's uh, at least that that's a rugged ball. Yeah, I uh, I <laughs> I look more like um, uh, one of those balls where uh, it's like you buy the thing for your kid where it's a, it's like a Velcro hat that goes on their head and then the the ball that um, you throw at that hat and, and I'd, sticks I'd on like it. to differ. I, I think you look like a a medicine ball, like a <laughs> a strong, firm. Oh, thank you. Spherical, but like dense and yeah solid solid spherical is i think my like m- my best chance uh I'm talking about it, your your skull here. yeah <laughs> oh, oh, sorry <laughs> i thought we were talking full body um i i will introduce the voice that you're hearing uh that is um of course uh writer um photographer uh, activist um uh, gadfly, uh, muse of the um, psychedelic rock song, uh, kind of got a Davida uh, by Iron Butterfly. It is the one and only. Kai it's 15 Nagata. minutes well spent, uh, you know. <laughs> yeah. The entire um, A side. It's so good to hear you. And, I, I, and it was so good to get to see you. I, I always. Um, I had a little peek behind the scenes in podcast land here. I, I, I usually kill the video for recording the conversational part, um, but uh, it was nice to get to see you for a second. You, you and I are at very opposite ends of the um, hirsute spectrum. Um, well, you've gotten much hairier. Again, yeah. less so. I, I, I've, been, um, I've been on a sharpening uh, kick all weekend, so I was uh, sharpening all the knives and axes in the house, and, of course, the way to <laughs> test those is by... Um, you know, shaving little parts of your body. So now I have all these mangy patches of missing body hair uh, and some very sharp cutlery and, and axes. So again, we're meet, we're meeting in the middle. By the Man. end of year two of the pandemic, I'm going to be, um, you know, just uh, pale from uh, from two years spent inside and hairless from these, from sharpening all my weapons. These are the ingredients for the world's worst Tinder profile. Um, I just, <laughs> Luckily. <laughs> That's not even a thing where where I am. It's not even an option, and I'm I'm actually grateful because I think it would be too, too discouraging. But yeah. yeah, tell tell the people where, or, or is where you are a secret or um, I mean I don't want to uh, I don't want to um, uh, you know break any news that they that they ought not be privy to. You are not you're not in the city at the moment. Should we just leave it at that? I'm not in the city. I'm I'm in northern BC. I'm on Gixan territory. Uh, in the Skeena watershed, um, a long way from the closest grocery store or uh, <laughs> restaurant or anything like that. So we yeah, were supposed to talk here. a couple of weeks ago, and you and or something. I forget what it was, and and you had to um, postpone it. Uh, I can't remember what it was, but it was like it was because the the bridge had, had something stuck on it or something like oh um, yeah no a snowplow driver uh left his wing blade down and took out like 14 of the uprights on the wooden bridge which is the only way in and out of the valley where i live so we were quite literally 
uh, stuck <laughs> for a few days, um, which is fine. That's sort of the plan. So right, we were yeah, we were happy. This is um, I mean, I, I was going to get to this a little later, but I mean, why not get into it right now? Because I, 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 this is one of the things that I love the most about you, and 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 genuinely do admire it and think that it is one of the things that makes you so, uh, like it, it's, it's something that I wish were true of more people doing politics not only in, in British Columbia but but in Canada generally which is that you have a genuine comfort a genuine um, ease going between and a genuine knowledge of what I would consider the three sort of um, the three sort of constituents, and may, maybe it's four if you make a distinction b- between urban and suburban, um, uh, but, but the, the constituencies that kind of make up um, BC and, and to a certain extent make up Canada, although I think you, you just kind of have to reproduce all these categories again on the francophone side, which mm-hmm. is as well is a category that, that you understand a lot better than most people raised um, in, in English Canada. But, um, you know, the ur- urban... BC, um, and then and oh, sorry, that's my dog knocking over a Nalgene bottle uh, as a way of Hi, uh, signaling uh, that we're talking about uh, Vancouver. Um, so we've got uh, we've got sort of urban BC, um, and then rural non-indigenous um, BC or Canada, and 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 indigenous. Uh, uh, the, the indigenous nations that, um, uh, you know, whose, um, whose house were uh, crashing and, and um, an, an understanding of that kind of triangle as the sort of um, the world that, that BC politics and, and Canadian politics sort of takes place in, but that most people really don't feel comfortable in more than maybe one, sometimes two of, of those two parts of the, of, of those, of those three parts of the triangle. Hmm. Would you say wow. that that, would you agree with that, um, that assessment maybe of BC politics uh, separated from your uh, personal autobiography first? Yeah, no, I think that's a, that's an amazing uh, way of putting it. Like politics for me is uh, it's spatial. It's uh, less, oriented along like ideological left right lines and it's more about um where you are and who's around you uh and that can have that can overlap with uh class and other identity markers but yeah i think like where you are and where you do politics from is um really key to understanding bc and uh it's true that we should be more familiar with whose land we're on and how those systems of governance and that history interacts with and informs, um, you know, the building of cities and, uh, and BC politics. And the reason that we're not is because it's been deliberately erased. Like it's been erased as part of the settler colonial project. And so a lot of the time, I think people just have to go out and sort of figure these things out on their own or just have a friend who, you know, takes you back to where they're from or, Mm -hmm. or however that works. Um, The access points, Certainly for me, we're not through school. I mean, we didn't learn, we didn't learn almost anything about our own role and participation in the, in the settler colonial project in, in school. And I think that's by design. You're, you're, you actually, you're one of the few people, um, you know, I know whose family goes back longer in BC than, than I do. I'm a fourth generation 
uh, uh, BCer or Vancouverite. You are a fifth generation um, British Columbian. Uh, so your your roots go back. I mean, for, for a, a non-indigenous person in this part of the country, you know, pretty much as as far back as as anybody's go um, in, in terms of you know non-indigenous communities. Um, was that always in Vancouver, or was it? Um, uh, is is the rural part of 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 this part of the country? Has has that always been part of your your family story as well? Yeah, well, both. So, um, you know, both as sort of hewers of wood and drawers of water out on the out on the landscape, and and also in the city. I mean, since uh, well before the turn of the last century. So my my grandmother's grandfather was a coal miner from Scotland. Uh, Jack Campbell came over to work uh, around Nanaimo. Oh, he was not the Nagata. No, the first Nagata would have been um, Kumazo, who is my dad's dad's dad okay. uh, and that would have been yeah um 1900 or thereabouts okay there are uh, so few so, scottish nagatas that's why i was just uh, I was I'm, I'm one of the I, few yeah, yeah i'm one of the few you you know speaking of uh pursuit genetic combinations <laughs> that lead to hardy folk who are you know well suited to northern living uh yeah you could do worse than like northern japan and scotland but um yeah so I have four grandparents who were born in Vancouver and I wow. only realized later in my life how unusual that is. Yeah. I, I have two and, and that's super rare. So even within our family history, you know, the, the annual cycle was like built around fish runs and, and resource extraction. So, you know, my, my um, great grandfather, uh, Astaro Yoshida had a store in Vancouver, small business owner, backbone of the economy, apparently. <laughs> and he would go in, in the summers, um, you know, my great granny would run the store often with help from the kids. Uh, and he would go and work in the canneries fishing alongside Chinese and indigenous um, cannery workers in the 1930s and early forties. And so my grandma actually got to go up with him to a bunch of places that I later visited as part of my work oh, wow. and lived in the canneries and, and worked alongside um, other families, both from the territory and from the city who would go to earn some cash in the summer. And, you know, she has stories of coming back to the city. Uh, her dad would get back from, from working, you know, very dangerous, precarious uh, work hauling in um, fish for the big cannery companies. And he would take the kids to the peony at the end of fish runs so that would be like their their one big outing their big treat when he would splurge and you know they could go and um uh ride the roller coasters and stuff so yeah my family has this like east van uh and rural history that i just considered totally like normal and um yeah that was just sort of like the all the family stories were about uh farming fishing and cutting big trees down uh or mining coal, uh, and then coming and living in the city and, and doing that sort of on an annual cycle. So this is, I mean, I, I, I want to get immediately to what you just said, uh, but, but first I have to acknowledge the, the peony because I'm, 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 I'm talking to another friend right now who is in the, in the early stages of kind of outlining, um, a, a book about his years at, at the peony in the, in the, um, in the late seventies and early eighties. And is this and, Keith Baldry or 
your good friend Keith Baldry, who was famously a carny at the PE. No, <laughs> no, it's not. But once a carny, uh, as the saying goes, um, uh, no. But this is the one the thing about um, the PE because now, I, I, as a father, now um, uh, I've been taking my daughter to uh, the PE the last the last couple of years, and it is you step into this time machine back to working class Vancouver. It's yeah. the only non-gentrified part of the city. And it is surrounded by all these houses that are now mil- you know, multi-million dollar houses, but it is, uh, it, it's all of the, like, uh, the non-gentrified uh, residents of the neighborhood. And, of course, in, um, in Mina Shum's movie, uh, Meditation Park, uh, you know, there's all the great things about the, the grannies selling um, uh, parking at their house uh, for, for the P&E. Um, I, I, you know, and all those people, uh, you know, from, from that less glamorous generation of Vancouverites living in that neighborhood come back out into the streets to sell their backyard parking for the whole, you know, mm-hmm. end of summertime. But you go into the fair and, and all of a sudden it's not this multimillionaires resort town city anymore. It's, it's the, it's the jean jacket, um, like <laughs> goon city that it was the, the, from, from childhood. It, it's, it's totally remarkable. So the other thing that the peony was and is, um, it was a holding pen for Japanese Canadians who are rounded up from all over uh, coastal BC. That's right. That's right. Where they were put uh, processed um, as part of the internment process and then put on, on trains uh, to various internment sites and self-supporting sites around the province. So the last place I lived in Vancouver was uh, one and a half blocks from the PE, and I would bike to work past the building where my grandmother and grandfather, actually both sides of my dad's family, um, were held against their will in the early days of the Japanese internment. Holy shit. Those buildings are still there, right? That's where you have the 4-H, uh, uh, the livestock show as part of the part of the fair every summer. And so I've been in those buildings and walked around, you know, and smelled the animal shit and remembered um, my grandmother's stories about the bunk beds in those barns uh, and, the, and the fence around it. And, you know, there's a story from my grandfather's side where he actually befriended one of the RCMP constables who was guarding the gate and was allowed to slip out uh, to go and, and do some paperwork. He had to get some stuff signed because it was this huge scramble, right? The, go- the government was confiscating all of their, their property and they were trying to put chunks of land in trust with neighbors and uh, you know settle their affairs before they got on the trains. And so he has a story about, um, yeah, running around after curfew, trying to get some document notarized and then coming back and slipping back through the fence and going to sleep in the, the steel bunk beds in the, in the horse barn. But uh, yeah, that's the PE, and that was like literally in the backyard of the place where you know, I was raising my son in Vancouver. Yeah, I'd step outside in the summer and hear the, you know, the ah, the elevator, and uh, <laughs> like on a nice day when the traffic isn't too loud, you can hear all the kids on the rides. And then um, on the other side of the house was the elementary school, uh, so I'd hear the morning announcements at the elementary school that I went to as a kid, and they do land acknowledgements now. So it's like booming out of a loudspeaker over the gravel field where I used to run around and skin my knee, you know, a reminder that this is the unceded territory of the Musqueam, Squamish and Tsleil-Waututh nations. Wow. And then from the other end of the alley, ah, 
like the <laughs> people on the rides at the PE where my grandparents were interned. So yeah, for me, like history and, and BC history and my family's relationship uh, with the land and um, the coast is like, it's just very immediate. And I think as a kid, I just grew up thinking that was like normal that you would know roughly like who you are and where you're from and, and by what means you came to be, uh, you know, who you are and where you are in Vancouver. And I realized for more, more and more of my friends, as I met people growing up that like, there was just this kind of amnesia, um, you know, and, and a lack of identity or any sort of solid feeling about uh, who they were in relation to the land we call British Columbia. Well, mo- that most people just saw it, at, you know, absolutely as a, as a, as a blank slate, or it was the, it was the new place that, that they were from. And I mean, um, you know, last week I, I talked to, um, to Don Pemberton and, and she talks about, you know, growing up in a place uh, where it, it felt like everybody was starting at the same time from this, from go at the, at the, at the same. And, and I mean, that, that was, that was the case for so many of the kids I was going to school with, um, mm-hmm. you know, that all their parents had, had, had just gotten there. And, and many, you know, many, in many cases, a lot of kids were coming. So, so I, I was going to school in, in Burnaby um, right after I'm, you know, this, this would have been, you know, as, as the first kids born to the, um, uh, uh, South Asian um, uh, refugees from uh, Idi Amin in Uganda um, mm. uh, were were being born and going to school. So I went to school with uh, you know a lot of um, Ismaili kids who, you know, whose parents had you know been forced out of East Africa and and you know this was the blank slate that they had arrived to. Right was mm-hmm. was um, was was Vancouver. And, and, and for a lot of people, um, uh, you know, uh, Expo 86 was this kind of new beginning um, for the city. And, and for a lot of the, the sort of uh, um, either small is beautiful uh, Vancouverites or the sort of um, white pride Vancouverites, uh, Expo 86 was when everything went to hell in a handbasket. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but, but for other people, it, it was when, you know, the new version of the, the city got started. And um, uh, you realize, yeah. yeah, what you're saying, I mean, to, to, to have a, 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 an in-depth multi-generational connection to the places that you're, you know, it's, it, you know in, in somewhat less fraught ways than what you're describing. I mean, I, I don't have anything, you know, remotely comparable to um, um, you know, the place where my grandparents were, were interned or anything like that. But my daughter does we, we, you know, from her first daycare, we would walk through the school grounds of, of my grandfather's elementary school. And, yeah. and we, we drive by yeah. the high school where my grandmother uh, graduated, um, you know, every day on our, on our, on our drive back home. Um, uh, you know, and that's, that's not what most people living in Vancouver uh, experience of, of the yeah. physical city. So that's, I think that's what I mean when I say that politics for me is spatial. There's probably mm-hmm. a better way to say that, but like, no, I think, it's a, I think it's a great, I think it's a great way. And it also segues into, into sort of what I wanted to address about that, about that triangle question, right? Because I, mm. th- this is, um, 
you know, I think one of the, uh, you know, you talk about, um, you know, land acknowledgements on an East Van, um, you know, elementary school PA system. And, and, and I think, mm-hmm. you know, right now, if, if you, uh, if you, if you talk about sort of um, uh, questions about indigenous rights, uh, indigenous sovereignty, indigenous title uh, in, in British Columbia, you know, this, this is, Obviously, I don't, I don't have the exact data to, to back up these assertions, but I think I'm on fairly safe ground. You've, you've essentially got sort of a, a political coalition of, um, you know, the in, indigenous nations themselves that are obviously, for the most part, concentrated outside of the big cities. And then a large number of um, supporters, in theory, of indigenous sovereignty and restitution and reconciliation in the urban centers um, Mm -hmm. among a sort of progressive leaning, more educated um, uh, uh, segments of the, of the population who nevertheless are to use your term spatially entirely removed from the realities that are being, you know, sort of faced kind of on a day-to-day basis by these nations and by these well, communities except for the fact that roughly half the indigenous people in bc live in the cities that's right true. yeah and so um when when you're talking about uh the ravages of covid or um you know land speculation and, and housing becoming more unaffordable all of those ills are are visited disproportionately on indigenous people in bc's cities in cities um, and so if right. you are poor uh and non-indigenous or you um you know, live in a neighborhood like East Van or parts of Nanaimo, um, then you just, your kids go to school uh, with urban indigenous kids and, and you are affected by the same economic and social forces um, that half the uh, indigenous people in BC are because they live in cities. And so, yeah, I think that that complicates things a little bit. And maybe we can talk a little bit about this too, but because of the housing speculation and the insane cost of land in the cities, there is a generation of people that is being pushed out of the cities who are trying to find their way back to some sort of like small town or rural living, but they're Mm -hmm. bringing the sensibilities that you describe of, of urban BC. Um, And, you know, perhaps the the education or life experience uh, that make them more receptive to ideas of indigenous land reclamation sovereignty. And so I think on a generational scale that the politics of um, some of these rural parts of BC are really going to shift. And the pandemic has only accelerated that because anybody who can work remotely, i.e. like people who have uh, fake jobs like me, where you have a laptop and you don't right. really do anything with your hands. As long as you have access to decent coffee and decent internet, you can work pretty much from anywhere in BC. And so this is partly anecdotal. And I think partly there's a bit of a lag on the data, but we're going to see a huge um, outflow of, of people moving uh, onto and into new relationships with uh, rural parts of BC and, and the people who already live there. And it's going to be messy. And um, yeah, like, like any big sort of wave of, of human migration, it's going to come with, uh, with difficulty. But we got to get ready for it because as long as, uh, you know, people like me or my sister who cannot even afford rent, let alone to buy a house in the city that we grew up in. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's just really fewer and fewer options other than moving to Montreal, which I also endorse. 
Yeah, I mean, it, I, I, I mean, Montreal is always a good idea. I, uh, the, the, I, I, I absolutely take um, your, your your point about uh, the urbanization of, um, you know, the indigenous population of of BC, and 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 so that you know that we can't um, you know just completely. Um, uh, separate out uh, the issues along the the spatial lines that that were that that you know we're talking about here. But I, I guess I I do want to I do want to I, I, I still I I still do want to ask if there's something in the the question of like when we're when we're talking about where pipelines are going in or where right. when where we're talking about hunting rights or fishing rights um, where where we're talking about the the exercise of territorial sovereignty along you know vast stretches or swathes of, of territory that you know most of the people who are you know uh you know diligently signing online petitions and and maybe even demonstrating in cities mm -hmm. uh their solidarity like they're they're not going to see those places probably right. in their lifetimes right and and right. whereas you you have um you have these uh rural communities that are that are you know certainly when when the time comes to vote they're voting for parties or platforms or you know policies that are um uh that are less uh in line or or less supportive of 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 indigenous sovereignty of 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 uh, the sort of robust um, well, let, of... let's just say it like it is. They're voting for the political parties that celebrate settler colonialism instead of the parties that pretend to be embarrassed by it. Right. I think that's a, a very good uh, distinction. Um, but maybe understand at, at an experiential level more um, what it, what, for instance, uh, what, what it means to um, uh, rely uh, for part of your actual sustenance on hunting or fishing or, or to have the only mill in town close and everyone you know is out of work like yeah th this is um yeah i think what you're describing is absolutely real which is that uh the the heavyweight political constituencies um that really send the most mlas to to the legislature and you know, whose values and, and sensibilities and aesthetics really drive um, media and politics in, in BC and, and across Canada. Uh, those people are, for the most part, completely disconnected from the realities of the boom, bore, boom bust resource uh, industries in the places where they want to save the marmots or and, and yeah and i don't want to and i don't want to lay that out as as like as a moral charge like it's it but it really is just an objective statement of of fact that 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 the the places the places where support among non-indigenous citizens is highest um uh for you know uh for you know the the distinction that you just said um would be in places that are the you know the least um, the least familiar on a, on a day-to-day -day basis with a lot of these issues in question. There's not going to mm -hmm. be a pipeline going through East Vancouver. 
there's, there's well, there, well there's fun going through North Burnaby. Fair enough. Right? Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, that, uh, uh, <laughs> poorly chosen, uh, poorly chosen neighborhood. Um, and I mean, I, I mean, I guess, and you know, that's one of the reasons that um, you know that pipeline got got, got some attention is because um, some people with um, you know uh, North Shore views uh, um, are are maybe going to be affected as well. Um, but you're right in terms of like clear cuts, open pit mines, fish farms, uh, huge transmission lines, dams, reservoirs. None like, of that's going into this neighborhood. And also oh. no one from this neighborhood is going to be reliant on those jobs. And that's not to say that they're all opening bespoke cupcake places. They have their own shitty jobs and their own vulnerable um, uh, places in the economy. Um, but it's not in that that resource world that 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 is is the really the the sharp edge of Canadian resource colonialism that's that's essentially not changed since day one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, let's not bite the hand that feeds. I just applied for my bespoke cupcake uh, small business <laughs> grant uh, yeah. to open my. This own. is the year to do it. Yeah. Absolutely. What we need more of is, uh, is, is entrepreneurs starting small businesses. But yeah, um, that, that's absolutely right. And it goes back to how the city markets itself and the whole idea of it as being sort of a blank slate uh, mm-hmm. or a, a terra nullius was the word we used to use, right. where you can be anyone and you can, um, yeah, you can move to this sort of like postcard perfect uh, city. And um, in British Columbia, the province named after <laughs> England and Columbus. Yes. <laughs> and, and you can uh, get rich, right? And that has yeah. always been the promise of this colony ever since. I mean, I have a poster on my wall behind me, which might be visible in the, in the photo uh, that we took, but it says the new El Dorado. And it's like a, a marketing brochure for uh, gold miners, right? People seeking um, an enormous sort of windfall in this new land. Uh, and that would have been put up in San Francisco to mm. attract um, gold miners who were, uh, you know, the, the California gold rush had played out and they were looking for the next big strike. And so that was where they went. And that was where like tens of thousands of, uh, of American miners heavily armed uh, came. Um, and that is really where I think the sort of modern history of British Columbia begins is with those like literal shooting wars mm-hmm. uh, on, on riverbanks um, between uh well, Squatmuk and Klatmuk warriors and, and American miners backed by uh, the American military. I mean, there was one summer in the 1850s where we very nearly had uh, a U.S. cavalry division uh, just gallop across the border to, to reinforce miners as they tried to, um, to subjugate um, people in the Fraser Canyon and move them off the, off the, um, the rivers, right? Mm-hmm. Which is where people needed to be at certain times of year. Uh, to catch the fish they needed to survive the winter. And that was where the miners were, uh, I mean, using mercury and all kinds of just god-awful processes and extremely disruptive infrastructure to try and and sluice for gold. So, yeah, I mean, that's really how it started. And I don't think much has changed. And when you you look at some of the, the propaganda and the marketing material, that really drove that first wave of immigration to BC, it is eerily reminiscent of, you know, the condos being pre-sold <laughs> to rich investors wherever. Uh, and the sort of like um, 
a yeah, new living sure. concept. It's always yeah. a new. I, I, it, yeah. Can I guess? Does the concept involve two bedrooms, this a small nook that you're going to call a den? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I I also love the the Luna started moaning during uh, your description of uh, BC's rapacious uh, colonial history. So I feel like that whole your your. Um, uh, <laughs> capsule heard history it all before. of this uh, is just going to be underscored by this like uh, deeply empathetic uh, 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 moaning sound from from Luna, uh, but it it's really the response that anyone should have listening to the uh, um, the, the the short history of. Uh, the the colonial um, apparatus in 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 this part of the country. I mean, we you know we forget how how young BC is compared to like Ontario or Quebec or Nova Scotia. Um, that obviously doesn't mean uh, that this part of the world is young or or that the the that uh, you know that that this part of the world doesn't have. Um, uh, you know, civilizational history as long as, as and and as storied as as, as everywhere else in the world, um, but that the polities that we're talking about, British Columbia as such, um, mm-hmm. Vancouver as such, I mean, it is so much younger than than um, uh, its you know kind of equi- colonial equivalents back east. Uh, th- this history is a is a lot more recent. And uh, a lot more kind of recently brutal. Well, it's it's ongoing. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the that's the other sort of horrifying realization. Once you sort of come to terms with the history, is that actually nothing has changed, and and that process is ongoing. And in fact, public opinion, or you know, the Overton window, if you want to call it that, uh, has has shifted. But the policies that were enacted 150 years ago um, were probably you know equally uh, palatable or tolerated by the the settler population as uh, as we have now so that was the other thing i was going to say uh, earlier is just like the experience of being a kid from vancouver and going for the first time to montreal and quebec city and seeing buildings that were older than you know my family's foothold in the city where i grew up mm-hmm. was very disorienting like the idea that there would be buildings made by white people that were hundreds and hundreds of years old was a total novelty uh, when I, when I first visited um, Quebec and later had a chance to travel a little bit in, in Europe and uh, visited Turkey and saw, you know, like um, civilizations that had a, a, a language and a, and a history and a conception of self that stretched back over hundreds of human generations. And, and we're also nations and people in the contemporary sense. And I just found that like totally mind blowing because yeah, growing up in Vancouver, um, you know, our house, the house that I grew up in in East Van was probably one of the older uh, standing structures in the city. And yeah. those, uh, those towers downtown, like the, um, you know, the dominion building or whatever, all of those were built after my, uh, my own family uh, arrived to, uh, yeah, to start their new life. So um, when I was in grade 12, I was uh, on the uh, Canadian national debate uh, team that went to the world schools debate championships in, in, uh, in Jerusalem. And uh, there was a little side trip to Jordan and I had never been off the continent before. I mean, we'd never been, uh, you know, I'd never had like a European vacation or anything like that. And, you know, there was some fundraising at the school so that I could go on this trip. And I, 
Um, and I remember when I went to Jordan, because uh, by that time, it's like, okay, I've been in Canada, I've been in the United States. And then, you know, we went to these, uh, these, this debate championship, and it was in Israel. And then when I went to Jordan, I remember, you know, thinking, I'm, this is the first time I've ever been in a country that's not, um, where the government is not the, like a, a, um, a you know, a, a kind of colonial uh, um, apparatus. Like th this was the, 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 and I mean, you know, in some ways uh, it was like, that was, uh, that was me sort of lacking a certain knowledge about uh, how the, um, uh, you know, Hussein dynasty um, uh, had, had been brought in by the British um, uh, to, to uh, rule this, this country that they had, had carved out of the, uh, you know, a map of the desert um, uh, at the end of World War I. But, but that, that, that feeling... 16-year-old Charlie can be forgiven for not Yes, thank you. Thank you. I guess well, that's what I'm looking done for. Done all of the Absolution. But, yeah. I, but, 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 but the work that you do um, with uh, the Dogwood Initiative, and, uh, but, but also just, uh, I think, more broadly, and, and the way that you sort of carry yourself in the, in the world of politics really does go beyond this, the, I think, the, the, um, the guilt economy that, that so, much of, uh, so much of this, and, right. and, and, and not like not without reason right like there's obviously a lot to feel a great deal of of guilt and and shame about it's also clear though that there is no way forward um through through that or through exclusively that and and and, and you're involved with political projects that that do ask um people to to mobilize based on a feeling of of home um, that, that's mm -hmm. not necessarily um, I, 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 that doesn't necessarily come from a, from a place of of, of in, indigeneity, but that that does uh, that does come from their resonating with um, you know that th th this is the place that I'm from, or this is the place this is the place that I call, call home. How do you how do we walk that line? Uh, because I, I I I think it it really is it, it's so um, vital in terms of any kind of hopeful democratic project in 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 this context how how do you speak to normal people who are you know hopefully of good faith or can be won over to to good arguments but haven't necessarily um you know gone through uh you know the the, the grad seminar uh view of the world um uh, um you know, and, 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 and need to be part of political solutions that, that, that speak to uh, the universe that, that, that we inhabit. Well, I, I do believe that the only path forward um, and the only solution to the multiple predicaments we find ourselves in is through the reclamation of indigenous sovereignty and authority over the mm -hmm. land base. And I think that in the process, um, well, put it this way, like who is solving the, who's making a dent in the housing crisis in, in Vancouver? Like if you are a renter in Vancouver hanging on by your fingernails, what is the only fucking beacon of hope on the horizon? It's a 6,000 unit, like passive tower construction in Kitsilano 
of like affordable rental units with no parking stalls that's right next to a transit hub. And it's being built by the Squamish nation. Right. Like the, the only people who have the sort of uh, leverage and, and clout to be able to actually like hip check these uh, crises in a different direction are indigenous nations. Uh, if our governments are not willing to or able to step out of their role mm-hmm. as sort of caretakers of the colonial project, it is like the Chilcotin nation um, building a solar farm on the site of an abandoned sawmill. It is the Squamish nation uh, leveraging their control of a tiny uh, polygon next to the Molson brewery in order to just totally disregard uh, all of our archaic city zoning bylaws and just build the city of the future on reserve land. And so I don't think it's that hard to make the case for people that their lives would actually be better if their neighbors and the people whose land they live on had more of a say over the direction of the economy and the, and the place that we live. And so I remember a conversation with my uh, aunt and uncle. Um, this is a few years ago, but I, I, I remember just clocking this as, as something really important, but, but talking about climate change and this moment where my aunt, who is, who is not a radical by, by any stretch uh, and, but who just said, um, you know, that really, if, if there were basically that if there was any hope for her kids uh, when it came to um, climate change, it would be from um, indigenous sovereignty blocking uh, the construction of, of uh, these, these um, yeah. uh, totally reckless projects and, and, and stuff like that. And I mean, but now let me ask you though, because some people would say like, well, but that's that it, it's it's a problem to view indigenous sovereignty as instrumental to solving the problems of non-indigenous communities. Yeah, the same way it's a problem to sort of rely on uh, indigenous people to cry on their shoulder about your white guilt and you know your unearned privilege and all of the all of the stuff that you're complicit in on their land. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, solving the housing crisis or the climate crisis for the rest of us is sort of incidental to the project of, uh, of reclaiming and reasserting um, Indigenous governance in BC. Let's put it another way. I mean, look across the, the map of BC and 95% of the land and all the lakes and rivers is claimed by the crown as crown land. And then there's uh, less than 1% that's reserves, Indian reserves, and then the rest is private property. So farms, ranches, cities. So 95% of the land is claimed by the crown and then leased out by the crown to corporations from anywhere in the world to extract resources. And then they're supposed to pay royalties to the public. Uh, And in return, the crown provides certain services like um, police to enforce injunctions against protesters or people who stand in the way of these projects. Uh, free electrical hookup, you know, we'll build you a transmission line to, uh, to your new uh, fracking camp or, or mine site. Um, so, you know, as long as that land is basically controlled by corporations um, under the auspices of the British crown, like how the fuck are we going to solve the climate crisis? How are we going to ever assert the control that we need you to, to stop logging the last old growth in, BC? Like, how are we ever going to solve these, uh, these challenges? 
and I think the land crisis, the speculation and the housing crisis are part of this. If we continue uh, to perpetuate this like archaic model where the crown owns all of the land and gets to decide what happens on it. So that again, coming back to the idea of politics being spatial, like I think that uh, some billionaire or some foreign corporation calling the shots on the land base, uh, surely that is not going to result in outcomes for everyday British Columbians that are as good as if your neighbors, the nation you live next to or whose land you live on um, are making those decisions. And I just think like we can't do much worse than the trajectory we're on right now. So one would think that this would be the time to rethink some of the fundamental assumptions that have gotten us here. I don't know whether our politics is capable of doing that, but I just don't see another pathway where we can sort of fiddle around the edges of the system we have and avert total systemic long-term overlapping breakdown of social services and climate and um, agriculture and all of these things that we rely on to have a, you know, a new living concept uh, in a tower next to Brentwood. What are the things that uh, that non-Indigenous political actors, um, and I'm, I mean the term as much, if not more, um, collectively as, as as opposed to individually? So I'm I'm thinking unions, I'm thinking civil society organizations, um, churches, um, you know, etc. What are the things that those organizations can bring in your mind um, to, to uh, the towards the goal of the realization of of indigenous uh, territorial sovereignty? Well, I think there's some some great work happening, and um, too many examples to name. But you know, seeing the openness from labor and faith communities, especially you know some of the few sort of collective institutions we have left. Um, and, you know, NGOs and other groups that sort of fill inadequately that gap um, between individual households and, um, you know, the machinery of government. Um, You know, I think that there's been a real shift. Like, I've picked this up in public opinion polling as well around the idea of crown land and who who makes decisions on the land and and just the idea of of reparations or reconciliation – for all of the harms done by by colonialism and which continue to happen. So I think I'm actually optimistic in terms of like the public's realization of the sort of fundamental injustice at the core of the place we call British Columbia uh, and the willingness to to think quite far outside of what you would consider sort of the political, what's politically possible. If you actually talk to people uh, about their feelings about you know, living on stolen land and being complicit in or forced to participate in an ongoing genocide. Like people, I think their hearts are in the right place. Like by and large, people don't want that uh, done in their name or they don't want to be part of that, of that uh, violence. And so um, at the same time, you talk about collective institutions and I've, I've really struggled with this because our collective institutions have become so weak Um even compared to a generation or two generations yes. ago that, uh, you know, I wonder like um, how much it is possible to accomplish with the political parties and the, and the faith groups and the labor organizations that we have. And all of this of course is, is by design and you could write books. Many people have about 
uh, why and how those institutions were weakened and whose interests that serves. But there's also work that needs to happen at the individual level. It just needs to happen quickly. <laughs> and there is some, there's education and there's this sort of like, I described this kind of dawning realization, you know, like it took me years of, of just sort of like going through life and, and reading things as I stumbled across them. And then, you know, following this trail of breadcrumbs to arrive at the horrifying realization that I was living in and part of this ongoing colonial project. Uh, and then the feelings of horror and guilt and all of those things, like, I'm sorry, but non-Indigenous people just need to deal with that shit and deal with it fairly quickly um, on an individual level or in your reading group or uh, family or whatever sort of unit at which you discuss these feelings. Um, and then we need to harness that and turn that into uh, collective action. So I think that uh, union locals and schools and, um, and, and faith groups can be an excellent sort of conduit for that kind of learning. Um, you know, and not to blow our own horn, but at the organization I work at, we've tried to just carve out like paid time in people's work schedule to do the reading, to, uh, you know, to watch um, educational films, to uh, just listen to and hear from people who, uh, whose lives have been shaped by this colonial violence, uh, because there's a recognition that that's not part of the curriculum or that people who have come from other countries or provinces might not uh, be up to date on the history of BC. Mm -hmm. So we've really just sort of undertaken a, a history project over the last couple of years um, in my office, just to try to like get ourselves caught up on what has happened to lead us to this point and where we stand. And I think, yeah, there's absolutely um, a role for those kinds of groups. Anybody who has a, a budget or, you know, uh, some claim over somebody's time for uh, some portion of the week or month can choose to devote that time to indigenous voices or indigenous historians and writers um, in order to sort of provide that sort of porthole uh, for members uh, and participants into that history and um, get a, a layer of understanding about the land they're standing on. So I think that's, that's got to happen first because otherwise it's all just abstract, right? If, if you're just saying, okay, well, now we support indigenous rights or now we're going to do land acknowledgements or now we're going to, you know, sort of sway with the tide and, and uh, this is what, you know, cool progressive woke people support now. So this is what we're going to get behind. It's, it's, it has no substance. Uh, it's it not only has no on substance, it not only has no substance, but if it's one side of a culture war, then yeah. necessarily there's going to be uh, the group that has purchase or, or, or cultural power from pushing back against it, right? Yeah. As, a, as opposed yeah. to laying it out as a, um, I, you know, I, one of the things that feels to me so hopeful is we're at this moment where, uh, as well, where there's, you know, the, the governor general has had to step down the, the office of, um, you know, the, the 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 re, the queen's representative in canada has has, has never been in, in greater disre, disrepute and uh the royal family and support for the monarchy in the country has never been lower um we, we're at this potential cultural inflection point where we could start talking about what it might mean to shift over uh, some of the, um, uh, you know, constitutional, yeah. uh, you know, blood and guts of, of, of uh, the, you know, the structures of the country um, to, to uh, be looking less towards, uh, 
you know, uh, Jeffrey Epstein's buddy's mom and more towards, um, you know, the, the nations whose land uh, the country is kind of uh, strung across. Yeah. This might sound flippant, but I'm absolutely sincere when I say that, like, Meghan Markle has done more, <laughs> uh, more work to advance the cause of decolonization, at least in the last 24 hours, uh, than almost anyone on the planet. I mean, to not only survive the institution of the royal family, but deprogram her partner and get her kid out of there and then go on Oprah and just blow the whole thing wide open. Um, I think it's just perfect timing. And you're right that, uh, you know, much as I love her majesty, she's not going to live forever. And there's this moment after the, after Queen Elizabeth dies, where this whole question of like, what the fuck we're doing with this institution um, is going to become a very live one for people in, in Commonwealth countries all over the world. I remember being woken up by my mother in the middle of the night as a school child to be told that Princess Diana had died in a, in a car crash in France. And I had to like get up and console my mother over, I, I don't know, it just seemed absurd to me as a, as a kid, but this was like, you know, this is the country we lived in. This was the royal family. So, um, you know, if, if, Diana and Dodi Al-Fayed had get in a car crash, you, you know, you wake up in the middle of the night and you sort of mourn the passing of, uh, of uh, great light in the Royal family. It was just like part of the air we breathed and the water we swam in. And I think hopefully we're at a point where, you know, enough Canadians, their ties are sufficiently frayed with the monarchy and the self-inflicted damage uh, uh, created by the Royal family creates the opening to have this conversation. And I think there's some incredible indigenous voices um, and thinkers that are ready to step in with some ideas about what that could look like. And the, the last thing I wanted to say is just that like, you know, take everything I say with a grain of salt as a, as a non-indigenous person, because the last thing we want is like you said, a culture war over indigenous rights where you've got two sides yelling at each other. Um, and the people who, whose land we're on and whose lives are, in the balance are not part of the conversation. And, you know, I'm reminded of Gordon Campbell's referenda on treaty rights in BC, um, where, you know, the BC liberals very coldly calculated that if you put this out to a plebiscite that, you know, the majority of people in BC being non-Indigenous would vote uh, for the furtherance of the settler colonial project and the suppression of Indigenous rights. And so, it's not up to a majority vote. It's not about having a, a sort of like um, culture war or a political debate uh, over indigenous rights. Um, but I think that there's a, a role for non-indigenous people to play in getting ourselves up to speed as quickly as we can and uh, serving as a human shield where necessary. Uh, if it's at the dinner table with your racist uncle or it's you know quite literally on the streets as police close in around indigenous youth, we have a role to use the privilege, unearned as it may be, um, and the and the status uh, that we have in order to um, just nurture the ember of indigenous resistance and resurgence that uh, that we are seeing that has always been there and which we are becoming more aware of um, in the last couple of years. I would say thanks to some brilliant uh, strategy and execution by indigenous leaders, historians, thinkers academics, um, and just regular people on the street. Kind of got it. Thanks so much for doing this, man. It was such a pleasure to have you. It's always a treat to hear your voice. And uh, I, I can't wait uh, for our first post-pandemic hug. 
Oh, it's going to be a good one. And um, yeah, I can't wait to cook for you when you and uh, Kara and Joji and Luna come up here. It's going to be uh, it's going to be a fun fun time. Yeah, make sure that snow plows out of the way. Yeah, do my best. <laughs> Take it easy, brother. You too. Bye.